that struck me by surprise that he wanted to become a professional actor and neither, of course, a revolutionary nor an engineer. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Now, what do you think of when you hear the name Leonid Brezhnev, who ruled the Soviet Union for 18 years from the 1960s to the 1980s? An old guy, waving weakly from the Lenin mausoleum? Well, think again. We speak with Susanna Schattenberg, the author of a new biography which systematically dismantles the stereotypical and one-dimensional view of Brezhnev as the stagnating Stalinist by drawing on a wealth of archival research and documents not previously studied in English. The Brezhnev that emerges is a complex one from his early apolitical years as an aspiring actor and poetry fan through to his swift and surprising rise through the party ranks. We talk about his hitherto misunderstood role in Khrushchev's ousting and appointment as his successor to his somewhat pro-Western foreign policy aims, deft consolidation and management of power and ultimate descent into addiction and untimely death. For Susanna, this is the story of a flawed and ineffectual idealist. For the West, this biography makes a convincing case that Brezhnev should be reappraised as one of the most interesting and important political figures of the 20th century. Time doesn't come free, and I'm asking listeners to support my work recording these incredible stories via a small or large donation if you become a monthly supporter via patreon you will get sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve cold war history still not sure just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate i'm delighted to welcome Susanna schattenberg to our cold war conversation it's very interesting because not a lot of documents are really uh, available. And uh, that is why I went to his hometown, which was then Kamenskoye in uh, Ukraine. So we know that he was from a Russian background. His parents came to Ukraine because they were searching for, for work. So he's obviously from poor uh, working class background. Uh, but to my surprise, um, they were not at all interested in revolution or in the Bolsheviks. And they were quite normal people. And of course, uh, they were religious people praying and having icons of the Orthodox saints in their uh, very small apartment and uh, they were rather interested in moving upward by giving their son a very good education which is quite unusual and rare for that time uh, that Brezhnev indeed uh, attended a secondary school which was normally not affordable to normal um, ordinary uh, working 
children. So uh, he had a quite happy childhood, as he said himself later. And the revolution and the civil war rather destroyed this a very happy small world uh, he lived in. And what is very interesting and, and nearly funny to me is that uh, his later official Soviet biographers had, of course, problems in fashioning a real revolutionary career out of this uh, very ordinary childhood and uh, really had problems in bringing his parents near to the Bolsheviks, then they uh, said that they allegedly welcomed the revolution, but there is no sign for it. And uh, rather, the Brezhnevs lived through a, a very hard time, and uh, Brezhnev himself nearly died uh, from illness to, during this time, and he was uh, happy to survive this period. His early years are unusual for some of the party leaders, but as you say, they, they, with any biography created during Soviet times, they try to insert this revolutionary story there. And uh, with Brezhnev, it, there obviously wasn't much there. And in fact, he was, uh, I understand, he, he was interested in being an amateur actor and he had a passion for poetry as well. That's right, and uh, that struck me by surprise that he wanted to become a professional actor and neither, of course, a revolutionary nor an engineer when he became indeed later and what was the favorite profession uh, in the 1920s and, and 30s. And uh, so he, he started play acting not only in an amateur's uh, acting group in the early 1920s, by the way, together with his two uh, siblings, his brother and his sister. But also later in the 1920s, when he started studying, he earned his living as an extra in the theater uh, there. And, and this uh, is like a red line through his whole life. He later in the 1960s, 70s, when he was already general secretary of the party, he told his aides and his, his, his friends and comrades how much he would have loved to become an actor. And he, he really liked uh, still then in the evening to uh, when they sat together, he would stand up on a chair and read by heart his uh, famous poets like Sergei Yassin. Wow, wow, that certainly does uh, bring a different side to him there. How was his later education? He he went to agricultural college, I think. Yes. Let me start with a very ordinary job he took just after the Civil War. He worked just as somebody unloading trucks in a factory and that for nearly four years because there was no different choice and he just had to make money. And that is also very interesting because this, of course, was kept secret by his official biographers because uh, this was a kind of um, activity that was not revolutionary 
uh, at all. But then he took the chance and uh, joined this college for agriculture. And he graduated as a land surveyor. And uh, that was in, in very difficult times because he uh, graduated in 1927 and in 1928 already uh, the collectivization of the countryside and the decollectization Uh, began. So Brezhnev, although he was not at all in, in, in favor of the, the Bolsheviks and revolution, uh, he had to, to fulfill the government policy and to measure the land that was taken by peasants and given to the collective farms. And uh, that is obviously why he finally really fled from the countryside. So he tried to escape the situation of growing uh, violence uh, in the countryside. And he took flight to, to Moscow in uh, 1930 and uh, tried there to um, enroll at the university, but left already after only one month because he could not find even a room for him and his wife and his uh, little daughter. So and this is already the second flight or escape he took, which, of course, both were uh, kept sacred by uh, the official stories later on the famous general secretary Brezhnev. And, and only then, one year later, He started studying and enrolled in again in Ukraine at an institute for engineering, which he really then uh, finished in 35 as, as an engineer. When did he actually join the party? He was quite, uh, excuse the pun, late to the party, I think. Yes, right. So this was only due to the type of occupation he uh, then had. So uh, while still working as a land surveyor, he had to take more responsibility on the Soviet level. And uh, these administrative jobs were only given to those who were party members. And as he was at that time, time, not a worker anymore, but as a, but as a land surveyor, so-called white-collar worker, uh, he had to wait uh, two years uh, from his application for joining the party in 1928 to his full establishment as party member in 1930, which was really late. So normally, young enthusiasts joined the party right after the revolution, or at least in the early 1920s. I'm presuming his Soviet biographers managed to uh, avoid that piece of information as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How did he fare during the 1930s? Was it quite a rapid rise? In the early 1930s, there are no signs that he would become later the general secretary of the Communist Party. Rather, his career was quite usual, uh, at least in, in for those who joined uh, finally the party. And, of course, 
even as student, he again um, was confronted with decolacization and collectivization of the countryside. So he could not evade being sent again to the countryside and help to enforce government politics against uh, the peasants. And uh, also he took quite early responsibility. So during his time as an as a student, so he studied only in the evening while during the day he was still working and he was leading a, a workers' faculty preparing workers for their later uh, studies. So we see here quite a lot of responsibilities, but uh, not necessarily anything that would have led to, to this uh, high career he took then after 1937. And we also see that he tried as much as he managed to enjoy life. So he went hunting uh, he loved dancing. After completing his study and um, serving his military service in 1936, he uh, was appointed again director uh, of a college, of a technical college, and there also he established circles for, for dancing and, and acting. So every spare time which a good communist uh, is supposed to spend for the party, he spent indeed uh, dancing and hunting. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. And we're talking sort of towards the late 1930s, which is when Stalin's purges were at, at their height. He obviously avoided the ultimate price of uh, being involved in those purges, but um how close did he come to being arrested? Yes, he came quite close. Although to establish this exactly how much uh, he was threatened by immediate arrest still uh, remains unclear because of the lack of, of sources. But uh, because there were so many uh, arrests, he was promoted first to the um, city administration of Dnepr-Derzhinsk, so still his hometown, and then even to the party bureau of his uh, hometown. And what was most striking to me that I could find uh, the minutes from the sessions, party bureau sessions in November uh, 37, when they were talking about excluding other party members from the party and having them arrested as enemies of the people. And in this minutes, you can see how much Brezhnev struggled to avoid anything that would threaten or endanger his colleagues and how much he tried to fashion himself as a very naive and unexperienced person who just by coincidence had to work with these alleged uh, enemies of the people. And uh, you see how much she tries to bring the attention back to the real problems like renovating buildings or building tramway rails, uh, etc. 
So uh, this is very interesting because there was not a lot of choice how to behave or rather how to speak in such fashions. And he really tries to avoid the discourse of party enemies, which have to be unveiled and which have to be uh, excluded and uh, arrested. And uh, there's only some evidence, but not from archival documents, that he himself was threatened by arrest because as the director of this technical college, he had added a, a third floor to the building without asking the party officials. But we don't know uh, if really there was a, um, a serious threat to him. So later in his party documents, he wrote that he was never under suspicion and, and never uh, under arrest. But we see how much he, he struggled and also how much he suffered because very close persons to him, uh, those who had supported him during his studies and even neighbors, people with whom he went hunting, were arrested and shot at that time. Yeah, that's some really good insight into the dangers of those times, even for those that were in party. Uh, in 1941, Germany invades the Soviet Union. What's his war record like? On the one hand, he had never really great responsibility or he was neither fighting with a gun in his hand at the front, uh, nor was he really a commander who had to lead the, the troops. Uh, but nevertheless, he was responsible for getting evacuated the town he was living and working at that time, which was already near Petrovsk, so the, the, the bigger regional uh, center. And also we see how close he comes to the front. And all the time he is a, a polit commissar, so the political leader or the political assistant of uh, the officers who is responsible for, for the strength, the moral strength of, of the troops. He, after the war, described to colleagues how much he was terrified, especially in these first uh, months of the war, how close he was under um, fire and bombing and how much he feared for his life. So later, the official propaganda made of him a war hero, which he never was, absolutely not. And they even invented a lot of episodes but uh, we, we absolutely have to, to face that the war had such an impact on Brezhnev that uh, he decided that it's the most terrible thing uh, under which people suffer and that he has to avoid for any price uh, another war. So he was really deeply trembled and, and shocked uh, by the severeness and, and brutalness uh, of the war. And at the end, he, he, he said or wrote 
uh, when there were rumors they might be sent uh, to Paris for some negotiations that he didn't want to go there. He wanted just to go home and uh, he said how much he hated all of this and the war and he uh, rather was spit on Paris than to go there. <laughs> that's a that's a, a great quote. But during the war, he meets somebody who is going to be of significant importance towards his rise to being general secretary. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Yes, that's correct. Uh, he, he meets Khrushchev, although he, he certainly met him already in 1938 when Khrushchev uh, became first secretary of, of Ukraine. But they um, meet again during the war and up, uh, obviously Khrushchev was uh, quite impressed by, by Brezhnev, uh, who, by the way, was obviously quite good looking. <laughs> and that is not so trivial as it may sound, but this uh, young, handsome man uh, impresses, obviously, also by his look, uh, people like first Khrushchev and later uh, even Stalin and uh, other persons. And uh, Khrushchev is then responsible for Brezhnev's career after the war um, because uh, after 45, Brezhnev, as many other officers, stays in the military, although he would love to uh, come home and uh, uh, get back to a civil life. Uh, although this is interesting also that from 45 to 46, so he is responsible for Sovietizing the Carpathians, which were uh, taken from uh, Czechoslovakia and made part of Ukraine. So here he has the first experience, uh, although still a military person as some kind of governor, how to restructure a whole region and implement a Soviet administration. But Khrushchev is the one who asked Stalin to send Brezhnev back to uh, Ukraine. And that happened then in, in 1947, where he first becomes uh, first secretary of uh, his, not really hometown, but the town where he worked before the war, uh, Dnieper-Petrovsk, then is uh, sent from there 
also uh, on the plea of Khrushchev to uh, Moldova to um, govern already a whole republic and uh, Sovietize it because Moldova was until the war part of uh, Romania and was occupied and annexed by the Soviet Union only uh, during the war. When Stalin dies and Khrushchev becomes general secretary, Brezhnev and, and Khrushchev become quite a close-knit team, I understand. In the higher party circles, there is still a quite severe power struggle going on and Khrushchev uses Brezhnev for fortifying his troops, so to say, and as a person he can use and uh, send into important provinces uh, as a counterpart uh, to those clients of his rivals. And so he sends uh, Brezhnev to Kazakhstan, where at that time uh, the very important agricultural reform is, is taking place. So this is the Virgin Land campaign where the party is propagating that they may grow maize and, 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 and corn uh, out of the, the poor desert or, or steppe. And so he sends uh, Brezhnev to, to Kazakhstan, where he is only second secretary, soon becomes first secretary, so head of the republic. And he is really responsible for implementing this huge agricultural reform in this desert-like uh, republic in, in, in Central Asia. And I had the impression from the archive there uh, that this is also very crucial for his further development because he sees in which poverty people are living, that they really live with, with nothing. And when they write about farm or the cattle and uh, all that, there's really nothing. They live in the poor sand and and the buildings are only made by mud. And I think Brezhnev is really frustrated and, and uh, shocked by the situation people live in. And he's really somebody who travels around the the country the whole time and tries to help and he does this up to his total exhaustion so here is the first time that he he breaks down and collapses with a with a first and only heart attack at a quite a young age of of 45 46 years only that's sort of first signs of uh, future health problems right but the, the relationship between him and Khrushchev breaks down in uh, later years, doesn't it? Khrushchev calls him to Moscow in 1956, where he makes him a real powerful um, secretary of the party for the armament industry. Khrushchev makes him head of the presidium of the Supreme Council of the country, which is to us the president and highest person in the state. 
And Brezhnev enjoys a lot traveling the, the world, at least through Africa and Asia. And why the relationship between Brezhnev and Khrushchev is shattering and, and deteriorating is, is not so easy to, to say. It seems it's more due to uh, Khrushchev's behavior and that he is developing to which a person acts totally independent. With, with Khrushchev, he's sort of baiting and ridiculing fellow members of the Politburo, and he's riding roughshod over collective leadership. He wants to take all the decisions himself. That is what he does with Brezhnev. So uh, he took advantage of earlier that Brezhnev was supporting him um, without asking and uh, without any hesitance. Uh, he's now ridiculing and saying that Brezhnev is only a phrase monger, somebody without his own mind. And he even takes uh, uh, Brezhnev from the post of the president of the Soviet Union, what Brezhnev takes very personally. And so the, the overall situation and the Politburo is that uh, they are afraid personally of of Khrushchev, um, that they see that he is um, damaging the country outside, for example, with the Cuba crisis and inside because there are first unrest which had to be suppressed with, with arms even because of uh, rising prices for, for meat and, and food. Um, but there's a third very uh, important uh, point, and that is that Khrushchev is telling um, them that the Politburo itself is such is only a bunch of old useless men, and that he is going to release it soon. And this, of course, uh, um, frightens and and alerts the the Politburo because they don't want it all to lose their posts. And that is the situation that they decide that they have to, to act and have to get rid of Khrushchev. So it's rather because of their own post and their own career than because they are um, concerned about the, the image of the Soviet Union uh, in, in the outer world. Dear listener, we have a book giveaway with this episode, so do make sure you check out the episode notes for how to enter. Best of luck. Now, back to the episode. When Brezhnev comes to power, his style is very different to uh, Khrushchev's leadership style. He's very familiar with his colleagues, stays in close contact with them, and also coming back to your, your mention about him being shocked by the poverty in the Soviet Union in, uh, in previous years that he's, that he's seen, um, he brings in some reforms around pensions, for example, doesn't he? I argue that um, Brezhnev is very much 
led in his politics toward the Politburo by the two puts against Khrushchev. So the first failed one and then the second successful one. So he is well aware that uh, the Politburo and not only the Politburo, but also the Central Committee uh, could at any time race against the general secretary that is himself and, and oust him. And so the, the first thing he cares about is that nobody will be felt threatened by him, that everybody sees him as a close friend that uh, doesn't put a threat or menace to, to anybody. And that is why he is often seen or described as such a nice guy without a clear program, without that kind of leadership we see in, in Khrushchev or Stalin. And uh, But I have the impression, and at some point he said this to a comrade, that people at least, after this enormous uh, terror under Stalin and, of course, the, the devastating Second World War, and after the still very furious, very disturbing years under Khrushchev, at least everybody shall settle in peace and, and just enjoy life a little bit of well-being. And, uh, of course, these programs of um, raising wages and, and pensions is a continuation from uh, Khrushchev's time, uh, who already began uh, with these kind of reforms. Also, the call to, to build apartment that at least every family has, his, has her own apartment is something Khrushchev already introduced and he uh, reinforces. So uh, this uh, welfare program or the, the plan to, to, to really build a welfare state is something he has in mind and which has all, uh, always been overlooked by, by a lot of other historians and politicians. In 1968, he's facing his first major international crisis with the Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia. And Alexander Dubček, who's the leader of Czechoslovakia at the time, is a protégé of Brezhnev. This was also very striking and, and curious to me first to find that in the very beginning Brezhnev supported Dubček and obviously thought him to be something like a Czechoslovakian Brezhnev. So just a young party leader, a promising person who is just trying to uh, modernize a little bit the state, but not necessarily uh, reform or even um, abolish uh, the party. And uh, until the very end, that means until mid of August, he really tries to support him, even to um, defend him against his colleagues in the Politburo and the more against the party leaders from the other brother states who are really frightened and alert about the situation in, in Czechoslovakia, where censorship is abolished and uh, the, the media may, may print and say everything what they want 
and where people are calling for leaving the, the Warsaw Pact and for making the Soviet Union responsible for all the crimes that have been committed uh, under socialism. And it's only in the end that uh, Brezhnev agrees to send troops when he realizes that Dubček no more uh, defends the, the Communist Party, but is telling him that at the uh, next uh, party congress, he will resign and probably the party will be uh, released at all. And uh, this is the, the red, red line here that, that Brezhnev is not prepared to accept that Czechoslovakia will, will leave the socialist bloc. But they have a situation when they meet to, to negotiate and Brezhnev tries uh, for last time to convince Dubček to to get rid of all the, how he says, counter-revolutionary persons and um, appoint reliable forces uh, that Brezhnev's, Brezhnev becomes ill. And it's, it's interesting because uh, Dubček believed that uh, Brezhnev is just playing and pretending to be ill, but indeed... Uh, he has headaches and, and problems with the stomachs, etc. And that is uh, the, the second time that we see how, how weak he is physically and how much stress deteriorates his, his health. And at that time, that is what his doctors later said, he begins to increase his daily doses of, of sleeping and tranquilizers, which he's taking already since Stalin's time, but now he's taking more and more, which will then lead to his pill addiction in the midst of the 1970s. Yes, yes. In the 1970s, Brezhnev is, is trying to portray himself almost like a Western statesman and and you describe his attempts to sort of build a big four similar to the big three during world war ii of roosevelt churchill and and stalin with brezhnev he's he's looking to build a big four which is him willie brandt in west germany richard nixon who's the u.s president at the time and georges pompidou who's the french president uh, and that is really interesting because Maybe it's just an anecdote, but Brezhnev thinks always of the big four during wartime, um, neglecting that they were not four because there was no French president at, at that time. Um, and when he writes to, to Pompidou uh, that 25 years after Potsdam, they have to reunite and rethink Europe uh, Pompidou writes on the letter, um, we weren't there, <laughs> but then crosses this out and uh, doesn't correct Brezhnev. Obviously, it's not important enough to, to him. But uh, nevertheless, it's it's really what, what Brezhnev wants to do and the reference to the war is important uh, to him. It's important to him. So, uh, he's really seeking for an durable peace and for a long-lasting, peaceful coexistence 
first in Europe and then also uh, with the USA. That is interesting because for a long time there were always um, prejudices saying that um, Brezhnev or the Soviet Union were just pretending to want peace. But indeed all statesmen with whom he is dealing and, and who he's meeting and having uh, four eyes talks, they all confirm that Brezhnev was really serious about uh, having peace and that he really loved uh, peace. And what is surprising that he uses his acting talent to get into the role of the Western statement. I can't tell how much this is conscious or unconscious, but he has a good awareness how the Soviet Union is perceived in the West as the evil, as the other, as the communist. And he understands that he has to circumvent this prejudices and present himself in a way that is... Um, that he's read like a Western statesman or, or perceived like just a man uh, as, as every man in, in the West. And he uses different means for this. So the first thing is that he tries to meet uh, all the other leaders personally. So first uh, Brandt, uh, then Pompidou, and finally, Nixon. And he tries to be alone with them, only with an interpreter and without all the other um, officials. And he makes joke with them, even anti-communist jokes, just to convince them he's not an ideologue, but he's uh, really just a, pe a person like, like them, they themselves. And uh, even with his uh, clothing, he tries to, to show that he's a Western statesman and he has a weakness for uh, clothing and uh, since, since his youth time already. And uh, these are really things that are noticed uh, by, by Nixon, also by Henry Kissinger, by Pompidou and, and Brandt. Sometimes they don't understand what Brezhnev is doing, or they are they think he's he's very Russian in, in being so close and uh, touchy and uh, very sanguine, how they call it, and uh, very southern, uh, uh, extroverted. Um, like he behaves, but nevertheless, they understand that he tries to impress them in a good way. And uh, this obviously leads to a situation where they begin to trust him. And on this ground of trust, it's possible then to, to conclude and sign uh, contracts. Yeah, and, and this is, is known as detente. And in the book, there's some great, photos of Brezhnev during this period. The the one I particularly like is uh, the one that was said to be his favourite because he felt that he looked like Alain Delon, who was a very famous French film star at the time. So this is also fascinating about Brezhnev. He's the first uh, Soviet party leader at all who has or hires 
his own photographer. Of course, this is not a personal photographer, but he's working for, for TASS, the Soviet press uh, agency. And, uh, but he is advising Brezhnev which photos to, to take and to print, and here especially which photo to send to the French press to prepare this, uh, the French people for the uh, visit Brezhnev uh, plans in uh, October 71. And so he decides to take that uh, picture where he's, on, where he's on board of a motor yacht in front of, of Crimea and, and really with sunglasses and, and a white uh, T-shirt. And, and he's comparing himself to, to Alain Delon and Obviously, he thinks that there's something a photograph French people will understand and like. Yeah, and he, he is trying to portray himself as this virile, active man. He's got a fondness for fast cars as well. And, uh, yeah, he, he's trying to portray himself as, well, as, as we've said earlier, as a, as a, as a Western Statesman, but the the latter half of the 1970s start to see his addiction taking hold and a decline in his health. The problem is that the first four or five years, his his plan and strategy uh, work quite well, and he's on really good terms with the three statesmen, and then. In only a few months, in, in spring, summers of 1974, all three resign or, or die. And, and Brezhnev is really shocked and totally frustrated because he sees that all his efforts to gain trust, to build trust and to get close to these uh, statesmen uh, have been in vain. And uh, feverishly, he really tries in within only some some weeks to uh, get contact, personal contacts to the, the to the followers. So to to Helmut Schmidt in 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 Bonn and to Valéry Giscard d'Estaing in in Paris and to Gerald Ford, uh, who even comes to Vladivostok to to meet uh, Brezhnev. But obviously, uh, he is too much under stress. So he's taking a lot of pills at that time, which is really a disaster because he takes pills to sleep at night and, and then he can't wake up in the morning and to calm down, he takes tranquilizers and then he, he can't be woken up by his aides, uh, uh, after the afternoon nap, which really causes scandals when he makes uh, uh, Giscard d'Estaing wait uh, for him for, for several hours, which can't be explained. And uh, he collapses in Vladivostok, which can be hide, but only with, with uh, difficulties in front of Gerald Ford. But then the beginning of 1975, he just vanishes from the international scene and uh, observers in the West are asking what is going on. And of course, nobody uh, had the idea that Brezhnev is probably just, uh, or we know he's in a rehab 
and tries to to get uh, rid of of the pill addiction, and that is something which really uh, is hampering him from from acting freely uh, from this point uh, until his very death. That uh, he has sometimes clear moments when he is able to act, and then. Again, for weeks and months, he is just under the influence of of pills and is not able to to even talk in the end. And that is why uh, his aides and and co colleagues try to surround him permanently by not only interpreters but doctors and other persons who may intervene in case Brezhnev loses control or just falls. And uh, that is what, yeah, what the world is um, observing and, and noticing that he's not able to speak anymore. Every answer he has to be given on a paper sheet and the own population begins to joke that he's not able to say a single word with, without a sheet. And that is really a, a disaster and, and the end of his deton because um, the West has no idea uh, of his faltering uh, health, or, or or rather, they they see that uh, the house is in in very bad condition, but they don't suspect here an addiction. And of course, um, Brezhnev uh, and the Soviet Union doesn't tell this to to the world. And so, um, the retreat of Brezhnev is interpreted in the West as a change of course in the Politburo toward a more um, aggressive um, relation toward the West. And uh, this is how everything he started in, in 1969 uh, ends uh, and at the end in a catastrophe with the invasion in Afghanistan. Yeah, and that was a, a question I was going to ask you. How much was he involved in that decision to invade Afghanistan, do you think? Obviously, or we know that uh, nearly for sure from the documents, he was not involved in this decision. Although he was informed uh, during the time from a special commission, which was built by the Politburo uh, to uh, care about the situation in, in A, like the document says. And uh, what was... Uh, uh, spoken and, and uh, what kind of oral exchange they had, we of course don't know. But uh, all his aides and colleagues say that at that time, in the end of uh, 79, Brezhnev was in really bad shape. And uh, that is why he was not involved in the decision making and just informed after the invasion that they had crossed with the army the border to Afghanistan in late December 79. Nevertheless, uh, the, the time before since the Afghan revolution in, in early 78, uh, he had a lot of contact with the party leaders in Afghanistan who were all the time asking for support, for military support, and they really asked what was never believed in the West they indeed asked for uh, military support and that the Soviet Union sent troops 
what uh, they always rejected very uh, seriously because there was a great analysis in the Politburo that if they sent troops to Afghanistan, this would end all attempts for a new detente that was which uh, totally destroy the image of the Soviet Union uh, inside and outside of the Soviet Union. There would be no means then to renew the contact to Western statesmen. And although they had this brilliant analysis, they finally nevertheless invaded Afghanistan and it came as they had previewed themselves. So this was a total catastrophe. And with Poland in 1981, with the the threat of invasion there, was that one of Brezhnev's more lucid times? Because it it appears from the book that he was involved more in the decision-making around that. Yes, yes. At least this is my impression that he gets more involved at that time. And uh, obviously the doctors had managed to at least control the amount of pills Brezhnev was taking. So uh, later his uh, grandsons were complaining that the doctors never managed to really free Brezhnev of this addiction, but they said there was no way to do this. The only way was to have a control on the amount. And uh, Brezhnev was starting to uh, do sports, to go swimming regularly, to have walks regularly. So there, he's in a better shape at that time. And I also got the impression from the disaster with Afghanistan, he tries uh, with all means to avoid a second disaster in, in Poland. And uh, so it's very clear to the Politburo that uh, whatever will happen, they would, will not invade there. And that is what they tell um, Jaroszelski, the Polish prime minister and uh, defense minister, and also first secretary of the party, so he has all three posts, that they have to care about their mess on their own, which is quite uh, funny that um, the Poles are understanding the situation and they say, okay, uh, if we do have to impose martial law by ourselves, so you have at least to help us materially. And they are calling for a lot of uh, support like uh, oil and gas and food, etc. And the Soviet Union sees no other way than to send all this uh, support to evade situation where they would send troops. And you can definitely argue that the rise of solidarity and the declaration of martial law was the beginning of the end for the Soviet Union and yes. um, the Cold War. And we have further information such as videos and links in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons. However, I want to especially thank our Politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 US dollars a month to keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Mark Labance, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, 
Frederick Esposito, Jack Madwed, Todd Lemieux and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information